So Al Gore, in a 2006 award-winning documentary, used charts and statistics and all these graphic, scary, kind of apocalyptic images to present what he entitled an inconvenient truth. And what was that inconvenient truth? It was global warming. Now, in all my years as a pastor, I have never preached a sermon on global warming. And you can all breathe a sigh of relief because I'm not going to start today. But I raise this because I want to talk to you this morning about another inconvenient truth. And that is the truth of divine judgment. I don't know if you heard it in the reading this morning, but Paul speaks very vividly about what he called the day. This great day in the future where God will act as judge over all of humanity. He describes it like this. And it's pretty cool because in this text, Paul has been accused by this church in Corinth. They're critical of him. They're judgy over him. And Paul looks back and he says, look, he says, I don't really care what you people think. You're not my judge. Instead, he says this, verse 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. So he says the Lord will come. He will stand as judge and he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and then each person's commendation will be from God. So he speaks to us very vividly about this coming day of judgment now, I think for a lot of us, the, the topic of Judgment Day is a topic that many of us resist. I know me, I'm a more, uh, I kind of deem myself a bit of an optimist. I'm a glass half full kind of person. I like to focus on the more cheery, positive subjects. And so I wouldn't on my own choose to preach a sermon on Judgment Day. It sounds kind of, you know, dark and ominous and all of this. And I think some of you in this group, you're, you're kind of like that. You, you avoid this topic. Maybe if you invited a friend to church this morning and you're that friend and you're sitting there, you're like, this is what I thought would happen when I came to church. And if you brought that friend, you're like, oh man, why this Sunday? Here we're talking about judgment day. And it is a topic that many of us avoid and we're wary of it. And there's good reason for our wariness. Because the idea of Judgment Day is a topic that has been misunderstood, it's been misapplied, it's been abused throughout the history of the church. Back in the Middle Ages, it was the threat of this oncoming day of judgment that was used as a tool, a manipulative tool, to get people buy, to buy something called an indulgence. And an indulgence was essentially a get-out-of-purgatory-free card, kind of a we will make you exempt from the day of judgment kind of card. And if you donated money to the church to fund their military campaigns and their building campaigns, uh, you know, then you would get one of these indulgences. And of course, abusing this doctrine is not unique to the Middle Ages. It's something that preachers and sometimes parents do in our own day and age. This can be a very helpful way to coerce your children to obey. Many people use uh, the day, the threat of judgment, the way many people in our culture use the Santa myth. And why do parents in our culture tell their children about Santa Claus? Well, someone says it's to stir their wonder and curiosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really a tool of manipulation and control, right? Because, you know, it's November. 
It's November and Christmas is coming, and this is a good time. You know, hey, kids, you better watch out. You better not pout. You better not crowd. You better not pout or cry or whatever. And I'm telling you why, because Santa Claus is coming to town, right? A lot of people say, well, Jesus is coming to town, and so you better behave. And it's one of those teachings that if it is misunderstood, it can actually be psychologically damaging. It can be unhealthy for people. You know, uh, statistics have shown, there's been studies on this, that people who have a vision of God that is angry and judging can themselves oftentimes be very fearful and insecure and sometimes angry people themselves. And you can become the kind of person who looks at somebody who is other than you. Somebody who has belief systems and behavior, lifestyles and whatnot that are different than yours, you can look on them with deep suspicion and you can withdraw from them and you can be overly critical of them. And so this is one of those subjects that is fraught with difficulties. It can be easily misunderstood. And you say, well, Josh, why are you talking about it then? It's not by choice. It's because it's a topic that Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He addresses this topic, and so you and I must look at it together. But what I want you to see this morning, I guess what I want to argue, my thesis for you this morning, is that the day of judgment, although it can be abused when properly used, it is far, far from being something that is psychologically damaging. This reality, when believed, when received, when lived in light of, can actually be one of the most liberating and freeing doctrines in the New Testament. So that's going to be my argument to you this morning. And I wanted you to see this morning three or four ways in which the doctrine of the, of the coming judgment of the day of judgment can actually be something that is liberating to us. It can be freeing to us. But before, but before we jump in and go there, uh, there's a couple things I just wanted to say about this oncoming day of judgment and what we even mean when we talk about the day of judgment. Now, I think for many people, you know, when they think about judgment day, uh, what comes to mind? It's uh, perhaps Dante's Inferno. This is an artistic depiction uh, from hundreds of years ago of Dante's Inferno, and it's quite creepy and freaky, you know. I think in more modern times, uh, when we think about Judgment Day, some of us might think of it as this long, like, ultra-long DMV line where you stand in line, you know, walk up, and finally you've got to, like, answer for yourself. But the New Testament, when it talks about Judgment Day, it's not really speaking of it in those terms, Paul describes it as this. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the Lord comes. And notice what he, he speaks of. He speaks of this day when God will bring to light those things now hidden in the darkness, and God will disclose the purposes of the heart. So there are hidden purposes of the heart. There are hidden motives. There are hidden actions. There are things that you do that nobody else knows about. There are ways in which there is injustice and violence and coercion and all kinds of things happening below the surface in our society, and it's hidden away. But on the day of judgment, God will disclose. He will bring to light the reality of the way things ultimately are. And we will have to answer for that. Now, I think for, for many people who are followers of Jesus, when they think about the day of judgment, they think, well, Christians are exempt from the day of judgment. Because, you know, uh, 
the way we talk about the gospel oftentimes is uh, we go up to people and we say, you know, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? And then we give, well, I was a very good person and this, that, and the other thing. You say, no, wrong answer. Uh, You will never be let in on your good works. Uh, Either on the day of judgment, you'll have to stand in yourself and answer for yourself or Jesus can step in and answer for you. And there's truth there and we'll talk about what we mean by that. But actually in the New Testament, Christians will ultimately stand before God on the day of judgment. And we ourselves will answer for the things that we have done in our lives. In fact, look at how Paul puts it in verse 4. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges who? He said me. In other words, Paul's aware that one day he will stand before Jesus and give an account of his life. And it's not just Paul. You and I will stand before Jesus one day and we will give an account for our lives. In Romans 14, Paul puts it again like this. He says, why do you pass judgment on one another? Now, again, he's not talking to people outside of the church. In this context, he's talking to the church. And to the church, he says, we must all, how many of us? Appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, how many? Each one of us will give an account before God. So again, this is all, this is everyone, this is each one. Uh, for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul puts it like this. He says, and so we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all, how many of us? All appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Now somebody says, whoa, wait a second. Wait, what about salvation by grace and not works. What do you mean one day we're going to have to stand before God and answer for our works? I thought we were saved by grace. Listen, you are saved by grace. Salvation is utterly and completely a work of God. God looked over the cosmic reality. He looked over the world. He looked at us, and he saw us in trouble, in a mess, all sunk into our own sin and death and darkness, enslaved to guilt and shame. And God, by his own self, in the person of his son Jesus, acted strong on your behalf. And by God's own strong arm in Jesus Christ, he has taken head on the enemies of sin and death and darkness, and he has defeated them all. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has been victorious. And he offers his great saving work that he has accomplished by his own self to us as a free gift. You reach out and you receive by grace freedom from sin and death and darkness and ultimately entrance into the kingdom of God. But salvation, although we are saved from sin and death and darkness and hell and the devil and all of God's enemies, we are not saved from judgment. In fact, the saved will stand before judgment. That's why Paul earlier says this in verse 51, or 15 of chapter 3. He says, if anyone's work, he's speaking of Christians and their work, if anyone's work is lost or is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. It's speaking about the day of judgment. 
Someone's work will be burned up. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. And so do you see him bringing together these two ideas of being saved and also being judged, but through fire? Are you catching this? So you say, well, what on earth is the purpose then of Judgment Day for a Christian? And to answer that question, I think you can look at it from two sides of a coin. On one side, you can think negative. The purpose of that final day of judgment is to name your dysfunction. It is to name the conflicted, twisted self that you often are. It is to expose the false self that you have been presenting to other people. It is to bring to light the dirt in your own life. It is to bring it to light so that God might ultimately burn it out and to deal with it. In other words, it is a judgment for your own sanctification and healing. Now, someone says, well, that doesn't sound that fun. (laughs) Well, this isn't all fun and games, is it, people? But listen, I I remember uh, years ago, my oldest daughter, back when she was, I don't know, five or six or something like this, we had had a strict moratorium on sweets. And she took a piece of candy from the cupboard and hid it away with her in her bed. And one night, she just broke down in tears. And she confessed to us. And she just couldn't live with that. It was like eating her up inside. And ultimately, it does us no good to live with the burden of our own darkness and shame and guilt and all that stuff in our life. Like, at the end of the day, you want, it's a good thing for that stuff to be named and called out because you don't want to carry that stuff around forever. One of the best things you could ever have happen to your life is to be exposed when you've been living in darkness, and you know it. And some of you have experienced it. And you look back as that kind of revelation, that kind of light that shone down on your life, it saved you. It saved your marriage. It saved your children because you were exposed. And so negatively, it's too exposed so that God might deal with that stuff. But secondly, it's not just a negative judgment, it's a positive judgment. So that those things that we've done that have been motivated by a genuine love for God ultimately will be commended by God, and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I remember listening to a scholar named N.T. Wright reflect back uh, during a conference, and it was a conference on his work that was held at Wheaton College, and if you're an academic and there's a conference on your work, that's actually a scary thing, because the point of the conference is for other academics to have a critical review of what you've done. And then, and so he got up and he said, you know, he goes, um, he said, this has been incredibly daunting, it's been scary and it's been troubling and hard, but he says, it's nice to be taken seriously. And there's a sense in which God takes humanity seriously. We're image bearers. And those things that he's wrought in us and that we've done in our lives, God will commend And he will look over our lives, and there are aspects of our lives that God will say, yes, well done, my beloved child. And so this is a a day that is coming. It is a day when God will not judge merely on the surface, but he'll go below the surface, not merely about our actions, but about the motivation of the heart that motivated the actions.
And it is this reality, this coming day, that you and I will stand before God and receive either commendation or correction that Paul thinks is good news. (laughs) Why? Well, let's talk about that. I want you to see why this was so... This actually, in this text, one of the unique things about this text is I think when you look into it, and we're going to kind of walk through this, it actually reveals why this was so liberating and freeing for Paul. And the first thing that it was liberating him from and that was freeing for was, number one, this truth for Paul freed him and it frees us, number one, from the tyranny of the judgment of others. It frees him and it frees us from the tyranny of the judgment of others. So we mentioned this earlier. Paul, at this point in this text, is reacting to a church that's been extraordinarily critical of him. So there was this church that was actually really critical of its pastor. Can you imagine a church that was like critical of their pastors? They're all the... Not this one, right, people? But they were all critical and judgy of Paul, you know, because he wasn't like one of these eloquent sophists who had all this rhetorical flourish and who were impressive with their philosophical speculations. Instead, he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling, preaching to them a message about a crucified Lord. And they're like, huh! And they're judging him. Well, who's this guy? He should be like, they would go listen to him and walk away. Did you believe what the pastor did today at church, what he said, how he acted? This is, and they're all talking about, and Paul looks at them. Look at what he says. He says, look, people. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of a steward that they should be found faithful. But with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you. He says, here's how you should think of us, as stewards. The word in Greek is oikonamas, Oikos in Greek is house. Namos is like ruler, so you put those together. It's the, the, a term used to describe a, a ruler of a household. In the first century, oftentimes you would have an estate, and on the estate there was the house structure, and then there were the farms, the lands that were being worked, and then there was the servants, and then there was kind of the business or whatever they were doing there, and then there was the children, And sometimes the owner of the estate would go away, and when they would go on travel, oftentimes, you know, they wouldn't ride in an airplane or in an automobile or whatever, instead they would ride horses and chariots and such. And so when they did a trip, I mean, they would be gone for months, sometimes even years, and while the owner was away, they would set the household under the care of an oikonamas, of a steward, somebody who would manage the household in the absence of the owner. And then when the owner returned, the oikonomos would give an account of how he managed the household. Now, if in the household, the children like were kind of misbehaving and the oikonomos came and said, hey, you guys need to get in. They're like, no, you can't tell us what to do. (laughs) And and then he got, oh no, no, the children are getting upset. I need to please the children and start, you know, and this, that, and the other. He's not answering to the children. Ultimately, he will give an account to the owner. And Paul is saying, look, the owner of my life is Jesus. 
He has put me in charge over the mysteries of God. I'm, an, I'm a herald of the gospel, and ultimately, I am going to give an account not to the church, but to Jesus. And ultimately, I will give an account not to you all, first and foremost, for what I do with my responsibility I have as a pastor. Ultimately, I will stand or fall before Jesus. I will give an account to Jesus for my role here. But it's not just true for me, it's not just true for Paul, it's true for you. You have things that have been entrusted into your care. Children, some of you, uh, finances, most of you, a job, lots of us, possessions, so on and so forth. And we will give an account to Jesus for how we manage that which has been entrusted into our care. And for Paul, this was incredibly liberating because for him it meant it doesn't matter what you all think. What matters is what Jesus thinks. And look, can we just be honest for a second? A lot of us spend a lot of our emotional energy agonizing over what people think of us. You come to church and somebody makes a weird comment to you and you're like, oh, what do they think of me? And then you go home and you honey, did you hear what they said about me? What did they mean by that? You know, and then, and then, and then you go into somebody, if somebody comes over to your house and, and then you think, I wonder what they think of my house. And they, they see your car. I wonder what they think of my car. I just got a nice car, a new car. What are they going to think about me? And, and, then, and then you start worrying, you agonize over what people think about you. You know, well, they went to this event at church and they're a participant in this program and they come up to you and say, why weren't you at this? And you're like, well, I, 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 I don't know. And then you're, you're going home and you're trying to justify it. And you're, we, we're always litigating. We're always presenting a resume to other people, trying to prove ourselves to other people. And it's because at the end of the day, we think we stand or fall not before the judgment of Jesus, but, because, but before the judgment of our neighbor. And I'm here to tell you the good news that whatever everyone thinks about you, it is an extraordinarily small, minuscule thing relative to Jesus. Ultimately, you and I are answerable to God for what we do. And so number one, this news liberates us from having to live and agonize over and spend up so much emotional energy trying to prove ourselves and impress others and present to others and agonize over what they thought about what we said or what we did or the purchase we made or the thing we're involved in or the job we have or whatever. It's all irrelevant. And the reality is, is that a lot of what the world finds impressive when you present is really meaningless to Jesus. For Jesus on that day, the basis of, of judgment operates on a whole different kind of standard. And there's going to be a lot of surprises on that day when the truth is disclosed about ultimate reality. Jesus indicates in Matthew 25 that one of the prime things he's going to be concerned about on that day is not how much money you did or how well you did or how impressive you looked, but how you treated your fellow human being. When they were naked, did you clothe them? When they were hungry, did you give them something to eat? When they were thirsty, did you, did you give them drink? When they were lonely and in prison, did you go visit them? Jesus says, in as much as you've done it to these, the least of these, my brethren, you're doing it to me. Ultimately, we'll answer to Jesus for what we do with our lives, not to other people. So this frees us from the tyranny of the opinion of others, but secondly, this not only frees us from the tyranny of the judgment of others, 
But secondly, this reality, the good news of God's judgment, it frees us from the burden of judging others. Paul says, verse 5, he says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. There's a time for judgment. There is a Lord who has been given into his hands the power to judge, and it's not you, and now is not the time. Now, some of you, I know, you are the type, you're the personality type, when you walk into a room, you see everything that's wrong. And you are the personality type that you have opinions about everything and everyone. Anybody need therapy? I'm in this category, I've got a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, a lot of opinions, and so you're constantly in this process of criticizing other people. You criticize people you know, you criticize people you don't know, you're always in this act of judging what people bought, where they eat, how they live, what they wear, how they think, whatever. And you're always kind of like criticizing and judging. But here's good news. Like, first of all, isn't that exhausting? You're like, no, that's quite fun and energizing, come to think of it. (laughs) But it's exhausting, and we feel like we're walking on eggshells around you. But the good news is, is that that's not your job, to walk around criticizing and judging everyone. God has exalted his son to the highest seat of cosmic authority, and he has committed to his son, Jesus, the authority to act as judge over cosmic history and over each person individually. That job belongs to Jesus. And look, that job is way beyond your pay grade anyway. Because just think about it. I mean, very often, you, you can look at people, and you and I, we are so quick to make judgments about people when we know nothing of their story. You know, driving through Skid Row yesterday, just looking out, you can see, you know, groups of people on the streets and just looking dirty and grungy and doing drugs and dealing drugs and selling their bodies and all of this stuff. And, and you can just find it repulsive in some sense. You can think, what's wrong with these people? But the reality is, is you have no idea of their story. You don't know what kind of abuse they received as a child. You don't know the wars that they were sent in by our government to fight and then to be totally psychologically damaged. You don't know their story. You and I, we know so little about what's going on in people's lives. You look around at people and somebody's like, oh, I was divorced or whatever. Oh, divorced. You have no idea their story. What would you have done if you were in their shoes? You don't know. That is way beyond your pay grade. It's way beyond your ability. And thank God it's been given into somebody's hands who is well qualified. The Lord of heaven and earth who knows all and sees all. But listen, you're not only ignorant about the true story behind bad behavior. You and I are often ignorant about the, 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 the real motivations behind good behavior. And so there can be people who are doing all kinds of great things. They look good. They look great upright. But if you go below the surface, you actually start seeing somebody who is incredibly power hungry and manipulative and coercive and really about image manipulation and they're about self-presentation. Jesus sees through all that. 
He sees through that in our neighbors, and so it's not our job to judge. It is left in the hands of Jesus, and so it frees us from the tyranny of the opinion of others. It frees us from the burden of, of judging others. Man, it frees you from the burden of your own self-justifications. Paul says in our text, he says, I don't even judge myself. Like, you and I, we are ignorant of our own motivations, aren't you? Like, I, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, how do I think I'm doing as a pastor? I mean, honestly, I would say, I think I'm doing pretty well. I think I'm, I'm, I'm motivated by the right desires for doing this job. But I have to confess with Paul that at the end of the day, I don't know myself well enough to make any definitive conclusions. Ultimately, I have to wait for that final day when that which is hidden is brought into the light and the secrets of the heart are disclosed. And so this news of judgment day, number one, it frees us from the tyranny of the opinion of others. Number two, it frees us from the burden of needing to be the judge and the critic of others. Thirdly, it frees us from the burden of our own efforts of self-justification as well as our self-condemnation. God's opinion of you actually may be way more positive than your opinion of yourself. But finally, this reality of judgment day for those who are followers of Jesus also free us from the fear of ultimate rejection. I like what Paul says. He says, look, it is the Lord who judges me. And for Paul, the Lord has a name. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It is the humble, meek Jesus who welcomed outcasts, who ate with sinners, who caught the woman in adultery and said, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. Paul says, it is this one who judges me. You know, the image that you're looking up on the screen, this is actually a, 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 from a church in Florence, Italy, it's from the 13th century. It's a mosaic. And it depicts a variety of different biblical scenes. And in this particular image, this is really the center. It's the largest of all the images in the artwork. And it's supposed to de depict Christ as judge. And he's sitting on this sphere, which represents all of the cosmos. He is the Lord, the ruler over all the cosmos. And the thing that struck me about this image were his hands. Because the scars on his hands are so pronounced. And it's here that we find hope from the fear of ultimate rejection on judgment day. It is because the one who judges us is none other than the Christ who bore our shame and our guilt and who died for us. One theologian named Jurgen Moltmann put it like this. He says, In Christ we recognize the judge of the final judgment, who himself became the one condemned for the accused in their stead and for their benefit, so that at the last judgment we expect one on the judgment seat who is the crucified one, the one who is crucified for the reconciliation of the world and no other judge. You know, in just a minute, we're going to close our time at the Lord's table, and so I want to invite our band to come up. But as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I just want to share with you this. I, I was, um, 
I was working on this text this week, and I noticed in this description of the final day of judgment, the, the, the emphasis, the weight is on that day of judgment, God is going to disclose what's in darkness. He's going to bring to light that which is hidden. He's going to reveal that he is the God who knows us, and he knows us all the way down. And I don't know why, but as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a story about Jesus in John 4. And you know the story where Jesus encounters this woman at a well in Samaria? And he, you know, comes to this, uh, this lady comes to him, and he starts talking to her in these metaphorical terms, you know, uh, if you drink from this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I will give you, you'll never thirst. And she's like, sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming to this well. And they start having this, this conversation. And she starts asking him a theological question because she's perceiving that he's the spiritual teacher, this rabbi. And so she's like, well, you know, there's a theological debate about, you know, where the Jews should worship. Is it here on the mountain in Samaria or this, that, and the other thing? And, and Jesus just breaks through all of her facade all of her theologizing. And he says, hey, um, go get your husband and, and bring him here. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he said, it's true you don't have a husband. You've had seven. And the man you're living with right now is not your husband. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> you bet I am, said Jesus. More than a prophet. But it's crazy because what happens next is this woman runs into the city and she starts telling everyone she sees, she says this, her, 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 her announcement to them, the good news she is spreading to them, the thing that is making her so excited is she says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And I'm just thinking like if I got that invitation, I think I'd run the opposite direction. Like, thank you very much, people, but I'm not going to go to the man who's going to look at me with x-ray vision and see me all the way down and expose me. How on earth is that good news? Why on earth was she so excited about that? Well, you know, it, it's because our deepest longing is to be fully known and at the same time fully loved. Like none of us wants to keep pretending. None of us wants to keep playing this game of self-presentation and living out of a false self. All of us wants to be known, and yet our fears is that when they know us, they're going to reject us. And what she met at the well was a man who knew her down and loved her still. He knew her all the way to the bottom, and yet he loved her all the way to the moon. And on the day of judgment, what we're going to meet is a Lord and a judge. He doesn't play games. He's not going to pretend. You are going to be naked and exposed before him. And he's going to see that stuff in your life that you don't like either. And he's going to deal with it. And it's going to be burned up. But this is a Lord who stands before you with nail-scarred hands because he has loved you to the moon and he's given himself to the uttermost for you. And it is this who you will face on the day of judgment and no other judge. And it is this who we meet at the table. 